This is our fourth and final week to explore this theme, God Works the Night Shift, and we've learned some things that will really sustain us through our dark days, through the dark seasons of our lives. We've learned that, that He is watching over us, that God is watching over us. We've learned that in times of trial and trouble, He is strengthening us so we can be a source of strength and encouragement to others. We learned last week that, that God works the night shift in times of trial and trouble. We can also have our character refined. It's just a fact that when we go through difficult times, we're more apt to be humble, broken, more malleable, more moldable, and so He can conform us into the likeness of Jesus. And then this morning, we're looking at this final idea that He is preparing a place for us. Now, my guess is that most everyone here this morning in the worship center and in the chapel is familiar with the term abandonment. The dictionary defines abandonment this way. It is a subjective emotional state in which a person feels undesired, left behind, insecure, or discarded. And of course, Abandonment has relational implications, since abandonment always involves one person leaving another, and it has to be one of the worst feelings anyone can experience. There is that initial shock, and then it's followed by feelings of lethargy, which can last for a few days or maybe weeks, months, but sometimes, in some cases, it lasts years. And there's even a genre of music that's developed out of these feelings of abandonment. It's called the blues. The subjective feelings of abandonment are called the blues. This kind of abandonment is willful and it is intentional. And some here today may have some firsthand experience with these bad feelings that are caused by the loss of a parent through death or divorce, perhaps inadequate physical or emotional care during your growing up years, during your childhood, maybe going through adolescence, you had a girlfriend break up with you or a boyfriend break up with you. Then there's marital unfaithfulness or desertion by a husband or wife, and as a senior adult, maybe being forgotten by an adult child. We're talking about intentional abandonment here, and my guess is that even my mentioning it, mentioning it here might have stirred up some painful memory from the past or maybe a present trial you're trying to work through, something maybe that has caused you to have these negative, subjective feelings of abandonment. Well, some abandonment is not intentional. It's not willful. It is rather circumstantial. You got a teacher or a coach that you valued who took a job in another community, maybe a pastor that you respected answered a call to the mission field, maybe a boss you enjoyed working under was transferred to another city, maybe a good friend's family moved to another state. Feelings of loss are similar here, but easier, it's easier to be objective when you know that it's more circumstantial. That's the reason why it has resulted in abandonment. You don't feel that sense of personal rejection when there's some kind of objective reason for the separation. But then there's a third category of abandonment. It's not intentional. It is not circumstantial. It is what I would call temporal. 
That's when you know that this person who has been significant in your life may have abandoned you, but he or she is going to return. So you really haven't said goodbye. You've only said, so long, see you later. And while there may be what I call separation sadness, it's softened and it's qualified because it's only temporary, and there will be a day of glad reunion. And I've had some firsthand experience with this third kind of abandonment. At the end of Kayleen's freshman year and my junior year in Bible college, she went back to her hometown of Quincy, Illinois, over on the Mississippi River on the west side for the summer to plan our wedding. I went back to Champaign, Illinois, on the east side of the state to work for a mobile home repair company and to serve as a weekend youth pastor for a local church. We were planning to marry at the end of the summer. So from mid-May until mid-August, we were apart. But it was only mildly frustrating for both of us because we saw an end date for our separation sadness. We were going to marry and be together all the time after August the 17th. So that expectation and that anticipation gave us bright hope and made the feelings of abandonment bearable. Well, in John chapter 14, Jesus is preparing the disciples for his temporary abandonment. He had just predicted Judas' betrayal. He had just predicted Peter's denial. He had just told them that he was leaving and that where he was going, they could not follow. And that had to be a disturbing revelation for the disciples. It had to be like a gust of wind snuffed out the light from every lamp in the upper room when Jesus told them, that news, the disciples found themselves in a darkness that went down into their souls because their Lord and hero and teacher and master, Messiah, dearly loved leader of three years, had just told them he was going away, and where he was going, they could not come with him. Now, from our vantage point today, we know the whole story. We know how everything turned out, but the disciples did not. They were clueless about the graphic reality of the crucifixion. They were clueless about the majestic wonder of the resurrection. They did not know the implications of what was about to happen. So they were experiencing these events as they unfolded. So put yourself in their shoes. They felt this dark dread of looming abandonment. And Jesus sensed their apprehension. And he sensed their anxiety and so he spoke some of the most comforting and often read words in the New Testament. And here they are in John 14, verses 1 to 6. Jesus said in that upper room that night with his disciples for the last time, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father 
except through me. So I wonder how many times that passage has been read, quoted, preached at a funeral or at a dark time in someone's life. Let not your heart be troubled. God's still in control. Let not your heart be troubled. You belong to the Lord. Let not your heart be troubled. God will make a way for you. Let not your heart be troubled. God is still on His throne. In the middle of the chaos, in the middle of the confusion, there is good news. Jesus is going away, but He is not going without leaving them something, something to remember Him by. Now, it's not unusual for people to want a memorial, to want a keepsake, whether it's a Bible or maybe a letter or a piece of clothing or a piece of jewelry to remind us of that person who is going away. And sometimes these bequests remind us of that person. Confession. I still wear my deceased father-in-law's strap T-shirts and boxer shorts from time to time. So if you've ever wondered, <laughs> it is boxers, occasionally. There's just something about putting on his strap T-shirts and boxer shorts that this feels good to me. And I, uh, I shave in the morning with my deceased father's straight razor. There's just something about it that is comforting to me. Well, the disciples needed reassurance. They needed comfort. So Jesus left a couple of things to his disciples then and to us, his disciples now, and they're revealed in the text. They are promises that we can hold on to in our dark days promises that we can hold on to in our dark seasons, knowing that God works the night shift. And the first is the promise of a place. Jesus promises He's going to prepare a dwelling place for His disciples. And we've been conditioned to believe that He is referring only to heaven here, and I myself have used this passage in John 14 many times in this way. And I do believe that this is the eschatological interpretation of the passage. That is, it is the application that has to do with death and judgment and the final destiny of the human soul. It's clearly part of it, and perhaps even the main thrust, that Jesus is going to prepare for us a place in heaven, and He'll return, and He'll take us to the place He's prepared for us to enjoy His presence and to, to enjoy the presence of loved ones who have preceded us into the greater life and experience that we'll have for all eternity, and that is a great source of comfort in times of sorrow indeed. But listen, at the same time, there's another dimension to this idea of place. Dwelling place also communicates that we can experience the presence of God now, not just after we die or Christ returns, not just in heaven. Jesus is telling His disciples that He is about to go to the cross 
I am going to prepare a dwelling place for you. He was going to the cross to prepare a dwelling place with God for them by dying for their sins and the sins of all mankind, people of every tongue, tribe, and nation. And when he died, you remember the temple veil was split from the top to the bottom. No more holy of holies in the temple, behind the temple veil, where the presence of God was confined. It was split from top to bottom, and the presence of God broke out, no more holy of holies in a literal temple. Now, guess who is the holy of holies, the place where His presence is pleased to dwell? We are His holy of holies. Our bodies are the temple of God, 1 Corinthians 6, the dwelling place of God. And Jesus went to the cross to prepare a place for all of us to dwell with God while we live on this earth. And he said he'd come back in the person of the promised Holy Spirit to live in them and enable them and empower them to become children of God so that wherever he is, there they would be also. So Jesus went to the cross to prepare a dwelling place both here and now and in the greater life so we can reside with him now and we can abide forever in the presence of the Father. And he told them, You know the place. You know the way to the place. The place is being able to make your home with God. The place is unbroken fellowship with God, to live with Him. And this experience, my friends, starts on earth. Don't wait till heaven. Experience heaven on earth by dwelling and abiding and worshiping and serving and enjoying God while you live your life on this fallen planet. Your heaven can and should begin now. In the Father's house are many rooms, and your room, your room is ready right now. Your room is prepared right now. It's ready because of what Jesus did for you on the cross and by his resurrection. So I want to ask you this morning, have you checked in yet? Have you checked in? Are you dwelling in his house today? The heaven experience can begin for you today, and it'll become even more wonderful someday. Take a look at the description of it in Revelation chapter 7, verse 15. They, that is the faithful Christ followers, are before the throne of God, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb, that is Jesus, at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And then it's reinforced in Revelation 21, verse 3 and following, that says, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's what we're in store for. I think most of you know the name of Johnny Erickson Tada. She was paralyzed in a diving accident in 1967. It made her a quadriplegic, and she has spent the last 48 years of her life in a wheelchair. That is nearly a half century of darkness. 
But God has been working the night shift in her life. Her heaven began when she was 19 years old. She's dwelling with God right now in the place that Jesus prepared for her. And one day she'll be translated to her permanent dwelling place where there are no more wheelchairs. And I want to show you a clip of an interview of Johnny Erickson Tata by Dave Stone, senior pastor of Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky, Patrick Garcia's father-in-law. Take a look. I've heard a rumor. This is not tabloid stuff or anything. You're safe. I've heard a rumor that you want to take your wheelchair with you to heaven. Oh. Yeah, no, it's pretty. It's nice. Well, it's not this wheelchair. I don't want to take this wheelchair to heaven. This, this is my really fancy schmancy streamlined model. You know? You're talking in circles, Johnny. <laughs> uh, no, what I want to do when I get to heaven is take my really old, clunky, dusty Everston Jennings big, bulky wheelchair I've got at home. Why do you want to do that? Because <laughs> it's so yucky, it's so old and grimy and greasy and dusty and dirty, and I know it's not theologically correct to take a wheelchair to heaven. <laughs> but if I could, I would. Because when I get my resurrected body, and soon after I have gotten up off my grateful, glorified knees, I'm going to stand next to Jesus. And I will say, Lord Jesus, do you see that wheelchair right there? Well, you were right when you said, in this world, I would have trouble. Because I tell you what, that thing was a lot of trouble. But Lord Jesus, the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. And I just don't think I would have realized the depth and the wonder and the joy and the peace and the amazement of your grace were it not for that awful thing. Hmm. And I just wanted you to have it up here so that I could tell you, thank you for the gift that you gave me of living more than three and a half decades in that wheelchair that I might come to feel the nearness of you and know your sweetness and the fragrance of your sustaining power and peace and perspective. Mm. And now you can send it to hell. <laughs> That's not in the Bible either. That's probably not theologically correct either. <laughs> well, it's easy to tell, isn't it? She's checked into her room. She's enjoying the presence of Jesus now. So we receive the promise of a dwelling place, starting on earth, continuing eternally in heaven. Here's the second promise. It's the promise of a path. Jesus told the disciples that they knew the place where he was going, but Thomas said, Lord, uh, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father on earth now or in heaven one day except through me. Now, I don't know of a verse in the Bible that's more controversial than this one verse. How many times have you heard people insist that there are many paths to God? There's just one God, they say, but there are many paths to Him. And that may be politically correct, but it is certainly not biblically correct. There's just one path. Jesus said it. Jesus, who never told a lie, 
said it, and the disciples all died for preaching it and teaching it when they could have just shut up. They could have just denied it. They could have renounced it and saved their lives. But they didn't. Here's what they said with one voice. There is salvation in no one else. For there was no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So what are you and I going to do with this truth claim by Jesus? Well, for Jesus to make such a claim that He is God, C.S. Lewis is absolutely right. He had to be one of three things. Here are your choices. He was either a liar, or He was a lunatic, or He was Lord. That's it. He was either bad, or He was mad, or He was God. So you cast your vote, knowing that literally everything, including your eternal destination, depends on the right answer. And Jesus' truth claim couldn't be any plainer. He said, I am the way, not a way. And then he added a clarifying statement. No one comes to the Father except through me. He wanted to be crystal clear. He wanted to be perfectly understood. Now, for such a self-serving statement to be made seems totally out of character for Jesus except for the fact that it is true. So is Jesus' claim something that you embrace, or is it rather an embarrassment? Listen, my friends, the whole Bible is about Him. To reject Jesus, to ignore Jesus, to forsake Jesus, it's all going to have the same end result. The verdict we give about Him is, in effect, the verdict we pronounce on ourselves couple of descriptions by Jesus about the path that he's promised. His words found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 14. He said, small is the gate, narrow the road or the path that leads to life, and only a few find it. Two words there. You see the word narrow. You see the word few. Implicit in the word narrow is the idea of exclusion. So in addition to Jesus being the only way, He's also the narrow way, but literally everyone is included in the invitation to walk with Him and to be with Him forever. So even though it is exclusive, this narrow way is exclusive, it's also inclusive because He's not willing that any should perish and that all should come to Him. God's kingdom is both exclusive and it is also inclusive and it means that we must come alone. We can't bring anything with us. It's a narrow way, so we come alone. We bring nothing with us. A turnstile might represent the narrow way. You go through a turnstile. You go alone. You cannot carry baggage with you, and this is how we enter the kingdom of heaven. We come one at a time. We come empty-handed. We enter not as groups, not as churches, not as families, but as individuals. And the narrow way focuses on God's truth, and the nature of truth is that it is narrow. <laughs> a thing is either true or it's not. Truth is fixed. Feelings are all over the map. They're varied. Truth is a matter of fact. Opinions are broad. They're diverse. They're conflicting. Truth is a matter of revelation. 
Truth is not determined by popular vote. The path of Jesus is fixed. Truth stands alone as reality. It's how things are. Truth is invincible. Truth is unbreakable. Truth is immutable. Another word that Jesus uses to describe the path is the word few. Few there be that find it, he said. And perhaps the reason few find the narrow way is that few are interested in looking for it. They're too busy. Or they're not religious. Or they're not very spiritually minded. Or they maybe have experienced some kind of counterfeit faith in their past, and so they have been repulsed. Or they're simply interested in pursuing other, other things with their time and their resources. Now, we rather like for the way of Jesus to be popular. We do. We like for it to be crowded when some well-known person endorses Jesus or declares their faith. We kind of feel good about that. We celebrate that. When we see a big crowd, we celebrate that. And I confess, I was thrilled to stand in the company of 100,000 people in the Cotton Bowl for Campus Crusade for Christ Explo 73. It was amazing. And I loved the Promise Keepers men's rally I attended at Cowboy Stadium in Dallas with 70,000 other men. But Jesus says here, only a few will find the path. Friends, I just want to be sure that I do whatever I can to help as many people as possible find it while I live, starting with my own family. I'll tell you, the greatest single purpose, my greatest single purpose for living is to go to heaven and take as many people with me as I possibly can, starting with my own family. And after many years and many trials, I am there with my family of origin, my brothers, my sister, my sisters-in-law, my brother-in-law were there. And I'm there with my nuclear family, our children, Carissa, Kyle, Camille, our in-laws, Brian, Desi, Matt, our grandchildren, Blakely, Mackenzie, Caden, Morgan, Macy, Bowen, Jada, Kale, Kyler, Avi, and London. Once Roy Weiss, longtime campus pastor for the University of Missouri, and his wife Carol determined they would not go through the surgery and the extensive therapy needed to treat his tongue and throat cancer. He gathered his four children and his grandchildren together in their home over Thanksgiving, and in an emotional meeting, he went around the family circle, and he told each and every family member, I think I'm going to be leaving for heaven sometime before the end of this year, and I will be waiting for you on the other side. Will you come and meet me there? And he looked each one of his children and in-laws and grandchildren in the eye. He said, I'll be waiting for you there. Will you promise? to come and meet me there. And he had each one of them answer. He wanted a commitment from them to meet him in the greater life. 
Folks, this is why we have church. So as many people as possible can come to a knowledge of the truth. So as many people as possible can claim the promise, the promise of the path. So as many people as possible can claim the place. As many people as possible can escape hell, the consequence of sin, unrepentant sin, and go to heaven. And this is why we extend challenges for you to voluntarily serve in this church and why we encourage you to take mission trips or to daily share your faith. It's why we challenge our church family to greater generosity from time to time. You don't think it's because I enjoy teaching on popular subjects like the God-honoring purpose of money. I don't. You don't think it's because I enjoy urging people to do things they don't want to do, like control spending and resist debt and enjoy giving. I don't. You don't think it's because I enjoy the leadership responsibility to financially resource our local and global vision. I don't. You don't think it's because I enjoy urging people to be self-denying in a self-indulging generation. I don't. You don't think it's because I enjoy reminding people to be generous with God's material blessings to accomplish His purpose. I don't. I don't do these things because I enjoy it or because I get anything out of it for myself personally. I don't. I don't. I do it for one reason and one reason alone. Because I want people that I know and love as well as people that I do not know and have never seen and will never meet go to heaven. That's it. It's just that simple. And everything we are setting out to do as a church in global outreach in multiplication of our ministry in the tri-state area, in the expansion and disciple, expansion of our worship and discipleship facility in the year ahead. It's all designed to do one thing, to help people here, near, and far away be saved. Marriages reconciled. Families restored. Addictions broken. Babies rescued from abortion, children rescued from human trafficking, the hungry fed, the needy clothed and housed. We can't do everything, but we can do something. And what we can do, we must do. The church of Jesus is God's method for preaching and teaching the message of salvation to the world. The church is the visible presence of Jesus Christ in our world until he comes again. We are his body, his living presence in this world. We want people to know that God is working the night shift, and we want people to know that he's prepared a place for them and for you. Are you ready to check into your room? And he's prepared. We want them to know that he's prepared a path for them and for you. Are you ready to be one of the few who walk in his narrow way. Pray with me. Father, thank you that our separation from the living presence of Jesus is just temporary.
that he is coming back again. And we thank you for the dwelling place that we have with you, Father, because of what Jesus did on the cross. Now, while we live, and we thank you for the promise of the greater life in the place that he's prepared. And we thank you for the narrow way, for that path that Jesus talked about. And we pray, Lord, that while we live, we will walk that path, and we will encourage others to join us. Lord, we thank you We thank you for the promises that sustain us in the dark days, the dark seasons. Thank you for working the night shift for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Several months ago, I pulled up to this parking lot at this prison about an hour outside of Evansville to teach the Bible to some inmates. I immediately was struck by all the barbed wire fences, armed guards, and cameras that were everywhere. And as I sat in the parking lot, I didn't know what to expect as I walked in there that afternoon. I mean, why were these men here in the first place? What what were they like? Well, as I made my way through all the different security checkpoints, I arrived in the classroom where I was to teach the Bible to these men that afternoon. As I peered out the window, I could see them making their way towards me, walking through the courtyard as they were wearing their brown uniforms. I thought to myself, these men were here for a reason. You see, somewhere along the way, somewhere in their life, they had made some bad decisions, some bad choices. Now, it seems weird for me to say, and you may not even believe it at first glance or when you hear it, but these guys seemed free. They seemed to be as if they weren't burdened by something. And you see, when worship broke out in that classroom, that's when the party began. They raised their hands in the air, and the sight of them celebrating Jesus' finished work on the cross was something that I will never forget the rest of my life. As I drove away that day, pulling out of the parking lot, what hit me was this. The freest people in our society are living behind bars. You see, they have nothing to hide. (laughs) They don't have to earn whatever it is that they're striving after. They don't have to act as if they have it all together because they know they don't. They don't feel as if they have to prove anything or be good enough. I mean, you see, living in a jail is a daily reminder that you don't have it all together. What you and I don't realize is that we have this tendency to live life behind bars every single day of our life. I'm talking about bars of guilt, bars of shame, maybe regret, fear. Maybe your past has a hold of you. Perhaps your bars are purposelessness or disappointment. But yet, what if you were free to be broken of those things? What if we were uh, broken to a point where we can find the true freedom that Christ originally meant for us and intended for us to have? What if when we come to the end of ourselves, God can step in and do his best work in us? For four weeks in the month of November, I invite you to take this journey with us as a church that we're gonna take through the New Testament book of Galatians. Now we're gonna be calling this series Broken and Free because it's in this letter that the writer Paul describes how the message of Jesus, the revolutionary message of Jesus, calls us to quit performing, to quit acting like we're more put together than we really are, face our brokenness, and start living in the freedom that Christ has paid for you and I. Because here's the thing, For those of us who are in Christ, we're broken to be free, and yet we're freed to be broken. Join me and bring a friend with you the weekend of November 7th and 8th, and let's run after brokenness and freedom together.